Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Longtime listeners of this show will know it's been a bit of an obsession of mine to give proper historical due to the pioneering work that Time Warner did on the early web. That's why I'm absolutely delighted that today we'll be talking with Paul Sagan. Paul has had a long and illustrious career, and for our purposes, that includes Stints working on the Full Service Network, that interactive TV initiative in Orlando, Florida, that we've mentioned several times in the past, as well as being a key member of the team that developed Pathfinder, one of the very first professionally produced content sites on the World Wide Web. Paul was also heavily involved in the development of another company that we've mentioned previously, Akamai Technologies where he served as Chief Operating Officer, CEO, and Director. Today, Paul is Executive-in-Residence at General Catalyst Partners. And a couple times in this episode, we mention another oral history project that Paul has been an integral part of, and that is Digital Riptide, which collects interviews about how journalism and digital technology have evolved over the past 25 years. If you're interested, I recommend that you go find out more about that project, at digitalriptide.org. In the meantime, please enjoy this exceptional conversation with web pioneer Paul Sagan. Paul Sagan, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So just to go into your background a little bit, uh, I know you're trained as a journalist, but also uh, I believe you came from a, a newspaper family. Is that right? That's right. I grew up in Chicago, and my father was and actually still in his 80s is in the newspaper business. So I grew up as a traditional print reporter, uh, worked in the business actually as a kid, worked in every department except the press room. So uh, I understood the ins and outs of the newspaper business and fell in love with journalism as a result. And uh, unless I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you might have been the, the youngest news editor ever at, at CBS News when you moved into uh, television journalism. I think I became the youngest news director at one of the owned and operated stations. So after I graduated from Northwestern with a degree in journalism from Medill, I went to work full-time at WCBS-TV, which was the owned and oper- is the owned and operated station in New York. And when I was 28, I, was, I became news director, and I, I think I was the youngest news director at an owned and operated station, at least at least back then. And were, were you also involved in, in the launch of uh, New York One? I was. After I left uh, CBS, uh, I went to Time Warner and joined the cable division to do cable news programming. And that was before Time Warner, way before the AOL merger, of course, but also before they owned Turner. So they didn't even own CNN. And there wasn't a lot of actual original cable programming outside of HBO mm-hmm. at Time Warner or Time Warner Cable. And they asked me to start regional news channels, and the first one was New York One in New York City. A, a big fan of, of of that channel; it's still excellent to this day. Um, you uh, it was one of the one, one of the best jobs I ever had. You um, 
how do you get involved uh, with the the full service network project? I don't know if this is skipping ahead a little bit, but um, how do you get involved with uh, the FSN project? Well, so what was going on at the time was when I joined Time and uh, Warner had just merged to, to form Time Warner, and there was an argument made by uh, the architects that deal of synergy among the divisions because the divisions Time Warner at that point had the number one or two entertainment for information companies in almost every category, number one studio, TV production, magazines, on and on. And the theory that they had uh, put forth to shareholders was put these things together and the divisions would work magic together and you'd get an even more successful business. That turned out not to be uh, a true model and it really struggled. But one of the efforts at the time was something called the full service network. And interestingly, it was a vision of what broadband web became a broadband internet but the idea was using the cable system you would provide interactive services to the home so the things that we take for granted today online shopping start and stop a movie digitally uh, based on a catalog of your interests, play a multiplayer game across houses not just two people sitting next to each other all those things actually were done in a very rudimentary way on what was called the full service network which was a Time Warner-owned cable system in Orlando, Florida, or in the suburbs, Maitland, Florida, outside of Orlando. And about 5,000 homes had, for a very brief time, a glimpse of, of the future, but it was on a proprietary platform and closed outside of those homes, not the open Internet that we now think of. Well, and also we should point out that it, the delivery mechanism is is the television primarily. It's not necessarily you know tablets or, or computers even um it was it was it was more the vision of of what was called then the the information superhighway right that's right but that is what the web became mm -hmm. there were no tablets then so it wasn't that they were left out uh, there were no smartphones they hadn't been invented in fact the technology wasn't ready to do it so the the biggest and highest quality screen was the tv screen so it had a, a kind of a kludgy interface using a remote uh, not a keyboard, and it was not a PC, but effectively what you got was a uh, SGI workstation disguised as a cable TV box um, in your living room, and it allowed you in a crude way to get on-demand video from news and information to movies and, and other forms of entertainment and, and on and on. And the, the synergy that was trying to be created was the reason that I and others got involved. I was actually in, in the magazine division at that point doing online work at Time, Inc. And the idea was Time, Inc. would supply the news and information content to the full-service network, and every division was participating. The sort of interesting footnote is while the project itself there was a miserable failure and cost hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, it was a glimpse of the future, and two of the most um, – important next steps came out of it. Really, the broadband uh, cable-based consumer access always on service was a direct outgrowth of our experience there. It turned into Roadrunner, which became the first broadband uh, consumer connection to the Internet, always on connection. And TiVo was invented there uh, as well as by one of the other, other teams. So it was a crazy idea, and it was proprietary, so it, it didn't scale for that and other reasons. But it really helped jumpstart some of the things that today we take for granted, like the DVR 
and a broadband always-on connection, which was a precursor to a mobile and always-available connection. And your your role specifically was, as you said, you're you're managing a, a news component. I believe it's called the the News Exchange, which was going to be essentially news programming for for this network. Is that right? Well, I was part of the team uh, doing interactive uh, programming and content at Time Inc. And we had a series of of interrelated projects. We tried to share technology, share engineers, and actually learn from one and, and move it to the next idea. So we were taking um, content from Time Inc. and licensing it to the proprietary dial-up services. So think AOL, Prodigy, CompuServe, pre-web. Uh, we were also launching Pathfinder, which was really the first web portal, and we were working on the full-service network. So this sort of small group was involved in this series of interactive news and information experiments on behalf of the company. If, if you'll forgive me for asking a bit of a cliched question, um, but it, it's sort of relevant for um, going into the Pathfinder story, um, do you have any recollection about you know first learning about the web, first hearing about the web, and, and first starting to think that, that maybe the web is a thing that, that's going to be big? Yeah, I actually, I, I remember my um, come here, Dr. Watson moment. Um, very, very exactly. So we were, at that point, still content from the Time, Inc. magazines, um, which were, you know, dominant media organizations at the time. Today, it's probably hard for people to understand the, really the reach and editorial, political, and Really, economic power of Time Magazine, Fortune Magazine, Money Magazine, People Magazine, Sports Illustrated, and on and on, under one house, if you will. And we were licensing that content to these dial-up services that were proprietary. AOL, not like you think of AOL today. Prodigy, which people don't even remember or copy serve. But the only way you got online was to subscribe have, to a proprietary service, have a dial-up modem, and dial in. And these services were charging initially by airtime or dial-up time by the minute. So they needed more reasons to keep their subscribers dialed in, and they thought refreshed content would, would get people coming back. So they paid us and others who had mostly text content a lot of money to license our content. And we were doing that, and it was interesting, but it was very frustrating because we, we no longer had really control over the formatting, the look and feel, or direct connection with our, our customers. So we understood the power of online because it was immediate, but there was this frustration. And then we started to hear about this idea of the web emerging, first coming out of the University of Illinois. And I remember one of the sort of techie editors at um, Entertainment Weekly, which is a magazine which was very powerful and big at the time, barely thought of today probably by most of your listeners. And he said, you have to come see something. And we went over to his windowless office. Uh, in one of the buildings in midtown Manhattan, and he had Mosaic up and running. And I remember uh, going in, and it was incredibly slow because it was a dial-up connection, and he connected to some academic website and went to a couple of, of uh, links that was you know barely had text on the screen. But the few of us in the room realized immediately that was it. That was going to be the future. We were going to go from this proprietary in very kludgy platforms to this open experience where suddenly if you were a writer or a publisher or anyone in media, you could reach anyone, anywhere, anytime in the world. And it was a, it was really an eye opening or maybe a mind exploding moment. And that would have been in the early nineties. 
So the the Pathfinder project is it originally conceived as maybe a a Time Warner version of an AOL or something like that, or or was it always from the beginning going to be a, a web pro- web project? Uh, it was going to be a web project from the beginning. Uh, now we we were trying to figure out different distribution models. How would you get people to come to it regularly? How would you build uh, an audience? We believe there was a lot of brand value in the Time Inc. brands, and that we in fact could and did promote by by the standards of then very large online audiences to come to Pathfinder as a site. It was not envisioned as a closed network or a dial-up service. We, we certainly looked at that model and toyed around with it, but the main idea was this would be a uh, open to anyone who could get on the internet and had a web browser experience. Uh, and some the uh, the money to, to start Pathfinder, is it true that that originally came from, from the full-service network project budget, like they just moved money over to, to, to try this new thing? No, that's that's not how I remember it. We had a, a, a budget for interactive experimentation at, at Time, Inc., but a lot of our money actually came from what we were being paid to license our content to those dial-up proprietary services. So a lot of what helped us build this interactive group was that money we got from licensing content uh, outside. And then the, the video project we did for the full-service network was essentially um, additional funding. So the, the Pathfinder project is is led by Walter Isaacson. Um, can, you, can you tell me uh, some of the other key people that that were involved in the launch? Oh, that goes back a long way. But Walter mm-hmm. was the um, uh, was the editor of New Media. Uh, I was working with Walter. Uh, Oliver Knowlton was, I believe, our first head of technology. There were several editors. Each of the magazines uh, assigned somebody to their, uh, if you will, category. Uh, was the first head of ad sales. Bruce Judson was the first general manager uh, of that uh, group. Uh, and the staff built up from there. We hired engineers. We hired some designers. Um, tried to piggyback on a lot of the effort that each of the magazines had in this effort to, to license some of our content to the proprietary services. You know, the story was a story. You could post it in several places. Um, and so we were doing that to try to figure out what was the best path forward what might actually build a new a new kind of business uh pathfinder launches i believe in in october of of 1994 so that that's a a full year before the netscape ipo i believe it's i believe it's the same month that hotwired launches so this is this is really really early days in terms of any sort of 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 media uh on the or professional i I think i think uh, i I don't remember which site went live first i think Mm -hmm. hotwired had a banner ad a day before Pathfinder did, but essentially uh, we were all out trying to figure this out at almost the same moment. Mm-hmm. So th- the question I always like to ask, especially for these sites that, that we can't even maybe see on the Wayback Machine anymore, is um, if, if you recall, if, if I were a browser and I came to Pathfinder on the day of its launch, uh, what would I have seen and, and what sort of content would I have been able to access? So it's been a little while since I've looked, but uh, many of the iterations of the homepage of Pathfinder are on the Wayback Machine, so you can go find quite a few of those uh, pages. You would have seen a very crude newsstand model, some headlines and as as you know text links, uh, and the logos of 
the magazines primarily because they were very, very powerful brands. Still are today, but much more so back then. And so you could have clicked on Life Magazine, Time Magazine, Sports Illustrated, Money Magazine, and you would have gone to a um, set of content uh, very um, uh, concurrent with those brands by category. And then you would have also found weather content under a weather link and some of the stuff that today you would think of as almost a commodity kind of content. There was a, a stock quotes link that would have given you stock quotes like you would see routinely today on your phone. So there was a uh, assortment of, of buttons, and um, if you clicked, you went to another page that would have been around that form of content. And and the content from, from these different verticals, like say from Sports Illustrated or whatever, is it – is it repurposed from um, the offline uh, media, or is is there original content being created originally for for Pathfinder? What, what's how's how's the content work in, at the beginning? So there was both. Of course, we were trying to repurpose what we had, and and it was more longer in depth. It's what you would have seen in the magazines, but we 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 understood and already understood from the experience in the serving of content to the proprietary dial-up services that you had to have fresh content. People wanted you know, the freshest news, the newest stuff. And so we were building a, a, a newsroom for Pathfinder. Many of the magazines started to create online newsrooms, and they were creating original content and posting stuff uh, on a regular basis because waiting for the weekly or fortnightly cycle was not sufficient, wasn't fresh enough. So very quickly we realized there was a uh, new demand on us, which was to create new and fresh content. I think I read a uh, an anecdote somewhere that, like, for example, you realize early on that, um, you know, there's there's no one in there on the weekends to update sports scores, and so that has to change. Like, I I, I talked about this with with Martin. Um, I'm curious about the idea of the moment when things change to realizing that that on the web it has to be almost a 24/7 news cycle. Do you remember um, Pathfinder dis- discovering that? I think we had a number of, of, of sort of eureka moments like that. I'm, it's so long ago, I don't remember which story we realized we had completely missed because people had gone home. But it didn't take long to realize that suddenly you needed to staff this not five days a week, but seven days a week, uh, and then 24 hours a day because the audience could always be there. And as the audience and the potential grew and the hunger for, if you will, page views to put up more ads, you realized you needed to be regular and reliable and be able to handle bigger and bigger audiences. So that was clearly a challenge for an organization that was used to publishing weekly or less frequently and had, you know, very long closing cycles of Friday night or Saturday night. Suddenly you had to have a publishing model that said we could update almost instantly. I, uh, some of the pages that you can find um, from Pathfinder um, that have been archived um, involved, you know, one of the biggest stories that I believe was 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 a huge traffic driver for you guys, which was which the the O.J. Simpson trial. Um, I believe you guys, uh, you know, created a, a pretty comprehensive site around around that trial and and got a lot of traffic for that. Do you remember anything about that? That's right. That was actually one of the um, I think first and biggest efforts. We had to create new content that wasn't specifically from one of the magazines, and it was because we realized that an ongoing story, people would come back and that the web was very interesting because you could provide the latest updates, but then people might want to delve into history. They might want to go to sidebars. And so content continued to have value. In fact, as you increase the amount you had and kept it fresh, 
it became more and more valuable. There was this virtuous circle. So we did have an OJ trial site, and obviously it was of interest for many, many months because that went on for a very long time, and it was extremely popular, and we were able to draw content from different magazines. Time was covering it differently than people, and you could draw that in and then write some of our own original content. And the OJ site, now that you mentioned, it was one of those earliest and, and very successful efforts. What, what about things like uh, community commenters, um, things like that? It, were there were there things like comments? Could I um, could I create a an identity on the Pathfinder site and and um, you know leave my two cents here and there on things like the OJ story? So it's interesting, and, and we did start to recognize pretty early on in our experience with the online services like AOL. Also taught us that community was important. We've been involved in in chats and message boards in those places and saw that people wanted to come when editors were there live and then they wanted to interact with each other. And it, it turned out that wound up being one of the most important things and one of things that was most challenging for a place that wasn't a dial-up service with subscribers. There was no identity like you got having an AOL email address or a, even a CompuServe email address, which back then were numbers. They weren't even your names. They were really very kludgy and, and, and hard to for people to, to recognize. So as I recall, people could leave comments and there were message boards and we did live chats with editors, um, effectively real-time communication and we would schedule them and people would come and those were important, but there was no individual Pathfinder uh, identity. We did experiment with giving people email addresses there uh, and that was probably a good idea, but way before it's time and, and we were unable to execute that really at, at scale or, or get people to want to have that is their their identity. And you, um, was there any sort of uh, was there any sort of like editorial or cultural um, discomfort with with this idea of playing with community? Where were um, was it a, was it a sort of thing where where people like the even the journalists themselves or the editors especially w- would have to get used to this idea of the audience isn't just being delivered to the audience can can talk back and interact that sort of thing? interesting I, I think people were very open to that because you know a letters to the editor page was always a very popular item in in newspapers and our our own magazine so I think editors were open to that and the discourse, even though people were a little more anonymous in some ways than today, so you know, if you think of no privacy and no anonymity on Facebook, back then AOL email addresses were pretty anonymous. And so, in fact, there was less clarity of who was speaking, but it wasn't nearly as, as snarky or as nasty as some of the things that happen today in the blogosphere or the Twitterverse, which are you know, incredibly cruel and instantaneous. So in some ways the discourse wasn't as negative, and so I think it wasn't as controversial. What actually was a trigger, kind of an aha moment for me to the on the side of this may not work well in a big company was an editorial experience, however. So you asked, us, you asked me a little earlier whether we started to have to create or want to create original content to augment the weekly or less frequent material for the magazines, and we did. And I remember very specifically we had a online People magazine staff, and one day they covered a, a story, and I did a photo essay on the opening of a what was supposed to be a new chain of restaurants didn't succeed that um, was going to be uh, based on um, supermodels. So, you know, think um, 
Hard Rock Cafe, Cafe right. or Planet Hollywood or something like that. So it can be supermodels. And they had an opening in Rockefeller Center of, I guess, what was the first uh, restaurant. And uh, we went out and covered it under the People Online brand and, and did a little um, – essay that I would say was a little tongue-in-cheek. It wasn't um, inappropriate. The photos were not obscene. There was nothing really bad uh, in it at all. Um, but I almost immediately from when it went up got an, a call from um, uh, the publisher of the magazine who was really, really angry because she thought it would offend her advertisers because it was a little bit racier and a little bit um, more tongue-in-cheek than they would ever do in the magazine and how dare we do this under their brand. And, you know, First said, sorry, I didn't read it that way. It's done by people who sat in, you know, her floor in her magazine. Um, but it really pointed out to me that this melding of the the online world and traditional brands was going to be a lot harder than it looked. And the more high profile it got, the more difficult it could be, because this was to me a very innocuous uh, example of what you could do online. Uh, and where I thought it fit the brand really, really well, but it somehow was this uh, uh, red flag waving uh, in, on the traditional side. And it was, a, well, I think, an early sign that maybe the marriage of uh, old media and, and new was, was not going to be happy. Well, let me pick up on that uh, a little bit more because, um, you know, this this notion of the the – the voice of online media that we're familiar with today, you know, the gawkers, the buzzfeeds or whatever, um, you know, uh, one of the, one of the famous progenitors of that was, uh, suck, which came out of, of hotwired, but also, um, on Pathfinder, I believe you guys had netly news, which sort of was like, kind of like a progenitor of this sort of an idea of a snarky webzine. Can you tell me a, a little bit about like netly news? So that was one of the areas of, of original content, and it was to try to cover the emerging online world and the things that were going on. And so it was a little bit uh, more tongue-in-cheek or a little more sarcastic. Again, it, it, it's interesting because it would look incredibly tame, I think, polite and deferential compared to what we see today, particularly in short form on the web and in places like Twitter and kind of the clickbait headlines that we see today and the uh, story links or at, uh, they're really ads at the bottom of, of many. And, and this was an area of original content covering the online world on the web world at the time. And it was started by some editors uh, inside I mean, and, and they really pretty good readership outside of um, our traditional audience and was reaching this new online world on the West Coast and in Boston and places like that. Uh, let me ask a couple of, of um, business model questions, if I could. Uh, I believe you guys experimented with um, some sorts of subscription models. I think it, there was a Pathfinder personal edition, um, but I, they never really caught on. Can, can you tell me a little bit about experimenting with, with trying a subscription model? Yeah, the, the, you, you could you could call it sort of the the trains that missed each other in the night or some some uh, uh, missed opportunities. So Pathfinder came from this publishing heritage of two revenue streams from magazines, very similar to newspapers or even uh, cable, which was subscriber revenues and advertising revenues. And the goal was always to try to generate 
both, but for a variety of reasons, including some that we covered um, on the Digital Riptide uh, project at the Kennedy School, which which I know you referred to as uh, as well, was that getting people to pay for content was very hard. It's very difficult still to this day. So everything was available for free, but we did believe there was an opportunity to do things like personalization and targeted content. Um, we had personal Pathfinder, Pathfinder um, uh, personal edition, which very much was what actually um, my Yahoo wound up looking like. Of course, my Yahoo wound up being another free site and competitive. We actually created that as a paid site, the, the Pathfinder uh, edition. And then we cut a deal for, as I recall, $5 million to license it first to CompuServe, which at that time was in a heated battle with AOL. And we thought it was a great deal because it was money to help us create it and launch it. And the idea was that if you were a CompuServe subscriber and they had millions of them, you would get this service for free as a subscriber. And we effectively had licensed it to them for this uh, $5 million for, I don't know, the first two years or something. Um, the real um, unfortunate thing that happened was it was right as CompuServe's model was breaking and they sailed off a cliff. And so rather than doubling down on it and promoting it heavily, um, they sent us the check and never mentioned it again. And I don't think any CompuServe subscribers ever even saw that they got it. And so what would have been an interesting early effort at a subscription premium product with a built-in revenue stream and a base of people who might have liked it and said there's value in this, um, unfortunately, was stillborn. Well, so then you have to fall back on on advertising as as the only viable business model and i'm curious uh this again this you launched in 1994 so this is absolutely the very beginning of even attempting advertising on the web was was that a struggle either to to land advertising partners or was it a struggle to um not have the users revolt uh, uh around ads the interesting thing is uh, we thought both would be a struggle, and neither really was. First, there was a lot of discussion. I remember people said they'll scale the walls if we put advertising on the Internet. And I, I, I'm not sure who they were that people really thought would do it or which walls they were going to scale. It didn't happen. Banner ads went up, and, and there really wasn't much hue and cry about it. And then people came to accept it and now dread it, I guess, uh, many years later. And advertisers were very interesting, interested in this new world and um, very much wanted some of the inventory on a site like Pathfinder. And so starting it took a lot of discussion, but then it happened rather rapidly, of course. I think over time what everyone found was while it was interesting and an often substantial incremental revenue, it wasn't enough to make these – um, standalone businesses, and certainly not businesses that are anything like the economic metrics of the old publishing models. Right. You. Um, we should mention that um, Walter Isaacson in '96 uh, goes goes back to Time Magazine, and so I believe you become the head of uh, Time Warner New Media. So, so you are in charge of the Pathfinder project. Um, is is the struggle? Uh, you're not you're not able to show. Um, your bosses in 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 the old world of media that that you're generating any revenue um it, how much rope are they willing to give you guys you know because we would look back on it now and say there's only what 20 million people in the world on the web at this point 
Um, how how much how much of a runway did you feel like Pathfinder had to to become successful? Well, it's interesting. Uh, the company was very generous. We spent millions of dollars, a trivial amount compared to the full service network, which you mentioned, which I think probably invested several hundred million dollars before um, that was stopped. So I never felt we were going to be uh, unsupported or not allowed to uh, invest. Uh, and and you mentioned that Walter went back to to time uh, in 96. And uh, then I was running the group with before we were partnered and, and then he left. I, I ran the group for about another year and a half, I guess, before I left. In many ways, what actually happened was the reverse. It wasn't a lack of interest and a um, uh, diminution, uh, diminution of the resources. It was that the web was looking more and more interesting, so interesting that rather than allow efforts like Pathfinder to run and become whatever the web needed them to be, the traditional businesses in the entire company, not just Time, Inc., wanted to control them more and more, and the challenges they wanted to control them kind of in service to the old models, and it made it harder and harder to move as nimbly as um, the upstart, the, the web companies. You know, back then, you can think of all of the portals or search engines, so Yahoo, Lycos, InfoSeq, Go, all of those, you know, ultimately, Google were going, and they started to just innovate more and more rapidly because they didn't have the kind of bureaucratic discussions. Then, of course, with the web bubble and being able to go public like the Netscape IPO, they were significantly better funded. But in terms of a willingness to invest, you could say that Time Warner actually made the biggest bet because they sold half the company to AOL, ultimately, in the world's worst merger decision in corporate American history. Well, you, you and that on, was very, and that was very much in pursuit of this ideal. Exactly, exactly. But you, you touched on two things there that I, I want to come back to real quickly. Uh, first of all, when when the web, when it becomes clear that the web is going to be big, is it is there some uh, tension between the old model and the new model on the level of? Well, Sports Illustrated wants its own website. People wants its own website, and and they don't want to folded under some other brand like Pathfinder or whatever. So is, is there is there a sense of tension between the, the existing brands and, and the existing, you know, content players within Time Warner? That's that's a completely fair question, and there was some of that. That was the portal brand versus the individual brand questions. I think in many ways it's exaggerated because we did actually have the best of both worlds. You could come to Pathfinder.com to the effectively the newsstand or the homepage, or you could go directly to time.com or moneymagazine.com or people.com and go to their homepage. And what we required was that they had some common navigation and a Pathfinder navigation bar that would take you to the other brands that would allow you to search all of the brands. So there was tension in terms of control, but it was much more about control of the future of the business opportunity, which I think was the more important debate going on, and rather where did the audience get promoted into because there were some people who liked to come to the portal site, some who had a specific uh, affinity for one topic or another, and entering either way was completely okay. The real battle was over whether the brands would control these businesses really in service of their current models or the, the company was going to create a wholly new media experience and business model. And the the second point, I'm curious, you know, maybe now with, with, with the benefit of 20 years of hindsight, uh, could Pathfinder have had a greater chance of success had it been a pure startup? Had it been 
you know, a, a VC funded, uh, you know, independent company that could have accessed the capital markets and things like that, as opposed to being within the umbrella of a, of a conglomerate. That's one of those hypotheticals, and I could uh, argue it round or flat. No one will ever know. Mm -hmm. There were many standalone technology companies. In fact, the majority of them didn't make it, whether because they made fell out below them. So just saying, if you were standalone, of course you would make it. There's no way to to know uh, the answer to that question. It's interesting to ponder it, but there's no way to actually answer it definitively, I think. And there were other things that we didn't understand that, frankly, many of the standalone um, web portals didn't understand. So we didn't fully appreciate at all the value of search because you have to remember we were editorial people and journalists. We believe that editors were so crucial. So in many ways, we were more similar to Yahoo, which had guides who were really cataloging the web for you. And, and search on Yahoo in the early days was about searching what their guides had had earmarked and, and tagged. And everybody, you could argue, missed the real uh, potential of what Google exploited of pure search and algorithmic search. So we might have been completely independent. Uh, and venture-backed or public market-backed and still completely missed what was one of the most important segues of the content and editorial model in that space. Well, and also, I, I don't want to say that, that Pathfinder was not a success because purely by being a a pioneer, you know, you guys are, are like you've been e explaining, you guys are the first people to be sussing out these sorts of questions. And and Pathfinder was a, a top five uh, you know, website in terms of traffic for, for many, many years on, on the early part of the web. Um, so, but you leave uh, Time Warner, I believe, in, in, in 1997, I think, and, and you go on a, a bit of a sabbatical for a while? Well, so so first I would say I, uh, I would agree with you. I don't think you can consider it uh, uh, a failure. Certainly in the long term, uh, it didn't turn into what it might have, but most, most things missed. I, there are certain legacies of it, I would argue that without both the Pathfinder experience and the full-service network experience, Roadrunner as the first consumer broadband service wouldn't have launched, and that might have delayed the whole explosion of broadband and always-on consumer experiences. So some of the projects that came out of these groups were very successful and important. Others, I think, were in the long term less successful, um, but still important at the time uh, and accomplished a great, a great deal. But partly from a tiny piece from the frustration of the sort of this encroaching corporate interest and misalignment between the existing businesses and the new, but mostly for purely personal reasons, uh, being that my wife and I wanted our children to have an international experience, I left Time Warner at the end of 97 and we moved uh, to Europe and I consulted to the World Economic Forum for a year. That's correct. Well, uh, time permitting, because I've, I've kept you longer than I promised already, um, tell me whatever you, you feel like uh, sharing about um, how you got involved with uh, Akamai. Okay, so uh, it's the summer of 1998. Uh, broadband is, is still not the dominant. We're still mostly a dial-up era, but websites are still crashing. Scaling is a tremendous problem. Web congestion is becoming kind of a crisis. Tim Berners-Lee identifies this as one of the threats to the web. And two theoretical mathematicians, a professor, Tom Layton and Danny Lewin, his student at MIT, have a mathematical answer. They're about to get venture funding. I meet them and told them I'd, I'd like to help them launch their business, and I'd consult for six months. That was the fall of 1998, and I, I stayed there as president and then CEO for 
about 15 years, and today I'm still a, a director of the company. If I could, if you'll indulge me, I'd like to leave with, with two sort of blue sky questions. One's a little simpler than the other. Um, but I'm curious, the first one would be, um, why was it that Time Warner, almost alone among the, the, the media conglomerates at, at the time, was willing and, and eager to explore new technologies like, like the web? Well, I think there are – I'd have to give credit to two people. Uh, one was, was Walter Isaacson, uh, with whom I was fortunate to be partnered on some of these earliest projects and then worked very closely with at New Media at Time, Inc., and he was uh, very open to the changes that were happening uh, and pushed very hard to form our group and experiment. And the other was, was Jerry Levin, who was the CEO of, of Time Warner, and uh, got a tremendous amount of criticism for the AOL merger, criticism that is, uh, I think, uh, largely um, justified and, and uh, unfortunate but justified. However, he had been one of the people who was very involved in the evolution and growth and success of HBO. And many people would say he was the person who realized that you could take a cable access channel in Manhattan, put it on a satellite, and create really a new medium, and, and that was HBO. And so he was continuing to search for the next technological breakthrough that would transform uh, one media generation into the remarkable next. And so he was fascinated by online. He supported our efforts and, you know, in many ways was a visionary behind uh, the full-service network, which we discussed earlier, that led to the creation of broadband internet and, and frankly has transformed the cable business today to being as much or more about internet access than it is about traditional uh, television uh, programming and distribution and Jerry at the corporate level pushed very very hard for us to experiment in this way that was very different than the other media company executives and Walter was very passionate about experimenting with new ways to reach our audiences with the journalism of, of Time Inc and I think that was a really remarkable combination of, uh, of support. And then there were other people who supported us in the senior ranks on the executive team and were willing to take a lot of chances, and, and many of them paid off. So the second one and the last one, uh, you know, this is something that sort of is addressed a lot in, in your digital uh, Riptide series, uh, but not, not why 20 years on is journalism – and uh, professional media is still struggling to be self-sustaining and to be profitable on the web. But my question would rather be, if I asked you 20 years ago, by 2016, we're still struggling to figure out how to make this work, how to make the dollars and cents work for professional media, would you, would you have believed me or did you, did you think maybe we would have had this solved by now? I wouldn't have believed you. We thought that this actually wasn't such a big problem, that this was going to be a great flowering of, of journalistic opportunities, that the ability to reach anyone in the world anytime uh, so easily was going to be a magic moment, actually, I think, for online journalism, that it would combine the best of the old with a much freer and direct business model. And I don't think we could have, and we certainly did not envision uh, how much we were going to unleash uh, challenges as opposed to uh, opportunities. And certainly there have been opportunities, and it, you can argue that in many ways there is more and better journalism, 
but it's inarguable that there is also this enormous challenge to to much of what we valued before and, and wonder whether it can continue. And it's really because the Internet goes across industries like this hot knife through butter leveling inefficiency. And I go back to that old expression. Somebody asks, how, how's your advertising spend going? And the person says, it's great. Half of it's working. I just don't know which half. Well, it turned out 5% was working. And now we know which 95% was a waste. And that kind of efficiency is what the Internet does best in almost any industry. And in the news business where advertising was really a subsidy that was married to the journalism and the content creation, that's created you know, enormous scary challenges for business models. Well, Paul Sagan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and um, remembering what it was like to be one of the first people um, uh, trying to come up with uh, solutions to those challenges. It's been a great pleasure. Great to uh, reminisce, and and thanks for including uh, some of my memories. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great Internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, and my personal Twitter is at brianmcc. Thanks for listening.